You are listening to the Capital District Civil War Roundtable Podcast, a podcast covering all things civil war. Please subscribe by going to our website, www.capitaldistrictcivilwar.org. You are listening to the Capital District Civil War Roundtable Podcast. My name is Nick Tony. I'm your host. And today we are recording from the Watervliet Senior Center, and my guest is Professor David Hochfelder. Uh, Professor Hochfelder is an associate professor at the University of Albany, and he uh, is an electrical engineer turned historian uh, and specializes in the history of U.S. business and technology. Uh, I think in a former life you were also a research uh, historian with the Thomas Edison Mm -hmm. papers at Rutgers. Correct. And uh, today, Professor Hochfelder is here to talk to us about his book, The Telegraph in America, 1832 to 1920. Thank you for joining me, Professor. Thanks, Nick. I appreciate the opportunity. Um, So there's a lot to get to here with this book. Um, Sort of the the overarching theme is that the telegraph was a revolutionary technology um, that had widespread influence. Um, In some regards, that influence is easier to measure, um, say, in journalism and uh, especially with the um, finance capitalism. In other ways, it's a lot harder to measure. Um, So we'll get into that. But just very basic for somebody like me who doesn't know anything about technology, especially the telegraph. Can you just give us sort of a a short, um, how does a telegraph work? Yeah, it's um, surprisingly a pretty straightforward technology. It's an electromagnet, a battery, a length of wire, and a switch, or the telegraph key. So it's conceptually fairly simple to understand. Um, Where it gets complicated is when the telegraph, and when several people, including Samuel Morse, came up with the idea for an electromagnetic telegraph, the discovery that electricity and magnetism were essentially the same physical force was a fairly recent discovery. Um, that discovery that electricity and magnetism are, are the same force, the electromagnetic force, dates back to about 1820. And then during the decade of the 1820s, several scientists began experimenting and created electromagnets, including another, um, uh, including Joseph Henry, who was a, a, a native of Galway, New York, and taught at the Albany Academy for many years before going on to bigger and better things at Princeton and then the Smithsonian. Henry developed these... Um, electromagnets that could suspend hundreds of pounds of weight or alternately could be actuated through several miles of wire. So Henry's scientific work and the work that he built on of other scientists really laid the scientific foundation for folks like Samuel Morse and others to build an electromagnetic telegraph. Um, The technology gets more sophisticated after the Civil War where you have multiplexing techniques to send multiple messages down a wire at the same time. But Morse's initial design is really straightforward, even though it is based on fairly recent scientific discoveries. And, and so who, who is Morse? What was his background? And uh, he's sort of an unlikely, um, and it, it was, he didn't have a scientific background, right. correct? That's correct. Uh, unlikely and also somewhat unlikable. Um, <laughs> uh, Morse was a New Englander, New Englander um, attended college at Yale right after the turn of the 19th century. Um, he was an artist, he was a painter, and in 1832 he was returning from a grand tour of Europe crossing the Atlantic and uh, on a sailing ship. And the voyage took many, many weeks, and he got talking with a Boston chemist named Charles T. Jackson who had witnessed several 
electrical demonstrations in Paris. And Jackson explained the basic principles of electricity and magnetism to Morse. And Morse claims that he got the idea on board ship talking with Jackson that he could devise a, a signaling system that used the properties of electromagnetism. Um, there's a value in being an outsider. Morse didn't know enough about electricity and magnetism to understand that what he was proposing was in fact impossible. Um, Alexander Graham Bell falls into that c category too later in the 1870s. Bell didn't know enough about electricity to realize that transmitting the human voice was in fact impossible. Wow. So, um, so, so Morse gets involved in, and uh, how does the first uh, telegraph line um, come to be? Mm -hmm. uh, Morse, I think, works with the government, and the, there's a line built between Washington and Baltimore. Can you tell us yeah. about that? So after Morse returns to the U.S. in the fall of 1832, he goes back to his teaching job at what is now New York University, teaching fine, fine arts and painting. And um, his brother lives in New York, so he stays with his brother and, um, uh, and also takes lodgings at the university and begins experimenting. And his telegraph design is not working over long distances. He can't get it to work further than a few hundred feet. So he calls in a, a chemistry professor, Leonard Gale, who says, oh, well, obviously you are familiar with these papers that Joseph Henry published in 1829 and 1830, and Morse was unaware of Henry's researches. So Leonard Gale brought Henry's research to Morse's attention, and then based on, on, on those papers, Morse uh, reconfigured his telegraph and got it to work through 10 miles of wire, and then hired a New York University graduate, a 21-year-old man named Alfred Vale from New Jersey, who had a mechanical bent, a mechanical aptitude, and designed um, nice-looking equipment that Morse could use as a demonstration prototype. And then in 1837 and 38, Morse and Vail took the show on the road. They went to Philadelphia, demonstrated it before the Franklin Institute, which was the leading scientific society in the country at the time, demonstrated it before Congress, members of the cabinet, interested people in, in, in and out of government in Washington, D.C., and Morse wanted Congress to buy his patent. Um, because at the time, the prevailing thought was that the US Constitution gave the Post Office Department a monopoly on the transmission of any kind of information. So Morse and virtually every other American thought that the telegraph should properly be operated by the federal government under, under the Post Offices and Post Roads Clause of the Constitution. Um, Morse was unable to convince Congress to buy his patent. Congress did finance the construction of his first line between Washington and Baltimore in 1844. Uh, that line proved successful, but Morse still could not convince Congress to buy his patent. So Morse and his business partners commercialized the telegraph um, and in the process made a substantial amount of money for themselves and their investors. And what did the, what did the telegraph business look like before the Civil War. Um, you talk about there were six, I think, fairly small companies that existed, and they existed in some, some kind of harmony. They operated in their own territory. Mm -hmm. um, can you just talk a little bit about that before we get into the war? Sure. Before about the mid-1850s, uh, Robert Luther Thompson, who wrote the first book on the telegraph industry before the Civil War uh, in, the, in the 1940s, described that period as one of methodless enthusiasm, and I cannot improve on that phrasing. Um, Investors and constructors built telegraph lines willy-nilly all over the country. Some of them were poorly built, failed within a few years. Um, one of Morse's business partners built a line between Boston and Portland, Maine, 
and didn't believe in insulation and uh, the line didn't work very well and had a lot of financial trouble. So up until about the mid 1850s, you know, like any new industry, there were, there were a lot of new entrants who didn't understand the business. So in the mid 50s, there's a shakeout. And by the time the dust settles in 1856 and 57, you have a situation where you have six companies, later seven, that decide to form a cartel and carve up the country into um, territories, exclusive territories. And then they form an operating agreement. It's called the Treaty of the Six Nations, colloquially. Um, and that holds through the end of the Civil War, well, except for the southern, uh, the southern companies. But it's a cooperation agreement. It's a monopoly. It keeps out rival companies, and um, it coordinates traffic among the various six telegraph companies. Uh, and so um, then the war comes, mm-hmm. and uh, everything changes. And uh, you, well, let's talk a little bit about now the government is building all these telegraph lines all over the place, correct? Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, union leaders are, are recognizing the significance of using the telegraph. Uh, particularly, I, I think you mentioned in the book, Edwin Stanton, he knows not only how important it is, but he also wants to have control over the information. Um, and so there's a massive uh, infrastructure that, that that's built. Um, can you talk a little bit about the United States um, military, military telegraph corps uh, and their role in the war and some of their challenges? Mm-hmm. Sure. Um, when the war breaks out in April 1861, especially in the summer of 1861 with the first Battle of Bull Run, um, it's pretty clear that the telegraph is going to be useful during the war, but it's not clear how. So the federal government um, basically goes to the, the commercial telegraph lines and says, we're not going to take you over completely, but we're going to require you to give military and government traffic top priority. So the commercial traffic will wait until you clear out government business. At the same time, there was a need to build telegraph lines that connected, say, the War Department headquarters where Stanton, uh, Secretary of War Stanton was, to commanders in the field and then from uh, general officers down to their subordinates on the on the battlefield to actually coordinate um, tactics and, and during the progress of battles. Um, Stanton is an interesting figure because he wants civilian control over the telegraph. And uh, General McClellan, who led the Union war effort initially, thought military control was, was the answer. So Stanton set the precedent for civilian oversight of this particular branch of the military that is this communications among uh, commanders in the field and the War Department headquarters. So um, I think that was a very important uh, step in order to keep civilian control of the armed forces generally. So Stanton did the country a service by doing that. Uh, and uh, w- uh, one of the uh, things that you, you talk about in, the, in that Civil War chapter is the actual operators themselves. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and just to be clear, the, the United States Military Telegraph Corps, they were not part of the military. They, they, were, um, they were separate, so they didn't fall under the authority of the military. And as you could imagine, it caused a lot of problems. Um, but it also uh, sort of created an, an identity for, for uh, a shared identity for the operators. Uh, can you talk a little bit about that and that how that sort of um, uh, advanced uh, in the post-war period? Mm-hmm. Sure. So um, I'm going to address the first part of your question a little more expansively. 
and uh, maybe not get as much on, on the second part of the question. U.S. Military Telegraph Corps um, had about 1,200 uh, men working, and they were all men, working for it uh, at its peak. And these are operators, linemen, managers, and you're right, they were civilians. The um, officers, captain and above, had captain to colonel, had military rank as quartermasters, as part of the quartermaster corps for the ordering of materials. But the operators and the linemen were civilians who were, um, who, who often retained their jobs with the civilian telegraph, the commercial telegraph lines. So the examples I look at in the book, um, there's one example, an operator named Luther Rose, who was in the U.S. military telegraph, uh, basically served as a frontline operator uh, attached to a general's headquarters staff. And then you have managers, um, uh, people like Anson Steger, who retained their civilian positions and salary. So, or William Gross, and, uh, who um, operated in the Southwest, or what is now Missouri and Arkansas. And um, he retained his civilian position with two companies in addition to his salary as a member of the U.S. Military Telegraph. So it was really kind of a hybrid organization in many ways. Um, the operators themselves did form, this is the first time the operators, telegraph operators really formed sort of a craft union uh, fraternity or mentality, self-conscious identity as skilled professionals who are entrusted with a sacred duty of transmitting um, civilian and military telegraph traffic. So you get a professionalization and, and, and you get your first union really um, and the only strike in the Confederacy was the strike of telegraph operators. So even in the South, there was a craft awareness of the importance of the work they were doing. And just to uh, just to, to list some of the numbers from May 1st, 1861 to June 30th, 1865, the United States Military Telegraph Corps handled 6.5 million uh, messages mm -hmm. and, uh, you know, at a cost of over two and a, two and a half million dollars. Uh, so, uh, and they were often operating in the line of fire and, and uh, several were killed, um, which after the war sort of causes this, uh, and you, you touch on a little bit in the book, but um, the telegraph operators were not permitted in the, uh, the uh, GR, uh, GAR mm -hmm. uh, and they were not uh, awarded pensions. So right. I just thought that that, that, that was interesting. Um, so let's move to post-war Western Union. Mm -hmm. Western Union emerges from the war with a monopoly. Uh, mm -hmm. can, you, can you tell us how that happened? Sure. So the 1857 agreement between the six and later seven telegraph companies that carved up the, con the country into territories uh, with exclusive rights. Um, the Civil War cuts the lines of the, Amer the major telegraph company, which was the American Telegraph Company, running from Boston to New Orleans down the eastern seaboard. Um, Western Union at the time operates mainly in New York State, has one line out to Chicago, is headquartered in Cleveland for a time, it's headquartered in Rochester for a time. Um, but Western Union is, is more of a regional player. The American Telegraph Company is the, the major telegraph line. And the outbreak of the war cuts its lines in half. The southern half becomes the Southern Telegraph Company, and the northern half retains the name the American Telegraph Company. Um, so that eliminates Western Union's major rival. Um, at the same time, there's a move toward consolidation simply because the telegraph really 
as a, as a national network operates best when it's under unified management. So Western Union begins buying up its, its rivals and by the summer of 1866 has control over all but one telegraph line and that's the very small Illinois and Mississippi which operates only within the state of Illinois and a little bit into Iowa. Um, but there's cooperation agreements that effectively turns the Illinois and Mississippi into a, a subsidiary of Western Union. So by the summer of 1866, it's pretty clear that the trend is going to be toward unified management, or to put it a little more um, pejoratively, monopoly. Right. And uh, so they, they, they get control um, effectively of, of all the telegraph uh, lines and mm -hmm. business in, in, the, uh, in, the, in the country. Um, let's pause there for a second and talk a little bit about um, who's using the telegraph. Uh, it's not your average you know, it's not your regular citizen. Um, it's it's businessmen. It's it's people who uh, are of well means, uh, and that's important. And I think that's probably something you had to grapple with as you wrote this, figuring out who this really really influenced. Can you talk a little bit about who was using it? Sure. Um, the telegraph provides rapid long distance communications. That's expensive, and the telegraph is really only needed for urgent, time sensitive messages. So ordinary Americans communicated through the post office. And since around 1850, postage was three cents for a letter sent anywhere within the continental United States. So you could send a letter from New York to California for three cents for the second half, during the second half of the 19th century. That was good enough for the vast majority of Americans. Um, so as a result, telegraph traffic was mainly um, the Telegraph is mainly used by the press, so the Associated New York Associated Press, um, other newspapers in and outside of the New York Associated Press, bankers, financiers, businessmen who needed to send um, messages that were time sensitive and were willing to pay. So a 10-word message from New York to Chicago, let's say, I, I would have to obtain the figures, but a dollar would be about what I would guess in the 1870s that that message would cost. And if you scale that up by a factor of anywhere between 20 and 50, depending on which multiplier you use, that's a pretty expensive message. So the ordinary person is not going to spend the equivalent of 20 to $50 in today's money to send a 10-word telegram just for, you know, uh, pleasure. Right. And, and when you have a small group of people, powerful people, using uh, this medium, uh, of course, concerns uh, arise about... Um, uh, whether or not that should be the case. And uh, there are calls almost immediately uh, after the war, and even before the war, but for private uh, a pub, uh, making this, the telegraph, something that the, post, the, the postal system operates. Mm -hmm. um, can you talk a little bit about that debate that, uh, that, that, that happened for decades after the war? Sure. So the postal telegraph debate, as it was called, lasted from 1866 to President Wilson's first administration in the 19-teens, um, arguably his second administration. Um, the United States, after 1870, the United States was the only industrializing, modernizing country that had a privately operated telegraph. Every other country, um, I think I'm safe in saying every other country except possibly China, um, had a nationalized telegraph system. Great Britain had a private system, and then in 1870 decided to nationalize their system. So after Great Britain does that, the United States is, is one of the only few countries with a private 
telegraph system. So we're, we're an outlier. Um, and the postal telegraph debate that is advocates of nationalizing the telegraph and placing it under postal control argued, uh, argued that this was desirable for two reasons. One was the high rate of sending a telegram, that it was expensive to do so. That European countries had effectively taken the telegraph and made it into a social medium that was affordable for the middle class to send messages pretty readily. Um, in countries like Belgium or Switzerland, the telegraph was effectively a precursor to the telephone in providing rapid point-to-point -point communications that ordinary people could use. Second argument was that Western Union was a, a, a monopoly, and along with the New York Associated Press, which was a monopoly over the news, that a monopoly that of, of the means of transmitting information was dangerous in private hands and should properly be turned over to the federal government. Um, so, uh, so obviously, uh, well, in, in in Britain, like you said, it was it was run by the government. Uh, and one of the other arguments was that it was run at a deficit. I mean, that mm -hmm. it would lose money. Yes. But um, uh, so uh, let's 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 go to the to, to the to the press part. Um, sure. Like you said, the Associated Press uh, essentially had a, no a monopoly on uh, gaining the news and then distributing it to mm -hmm. newspapers or other uh, news outlets. Um, what was the what was the significance of the telegraph there in changing that whole news industry? Mm -hmm. So a consortium of the New York City newspapers in the 1840s forms what would become the Associated Press. And they, what they want to do is they want to get the steamer news, that is the news from Europe, as soon as possible so they can publish in their papers. And each New York newspaper was sending representatives up to Halifax in Nova Scotia where ships from Europe would pass by and throw um, the news dispatches overboard. Um, and then the six New York newspapers would compete to see who would get the packet of news and publish first. So they realized this competition was kind of you know, a, a waste of effort. So they decided to pool their resources and form this press association that would handle European news. And then later that gets generalized to handle any other kind of news of national and international importance. Newspapers. So the, the New York Associated Press is, is owned and operated by New York newspapers only, but it sells important news items um, in the form of telegraphic dispatches to newspapers around the country. So if you were operating a newspaper in San Francisco, like the reformer Henry George was, um, if you wanted to be competitive with the other newspapers in your city, you had to get the New York Associated Press dispatch. But newspapers operating in a particular city like San Francisco, in the case of Henry George, um, could bar a new competitor from getting the New York Associated Press dispatches. So that's how the New York Associated Press monopolized um, the newspaper market, by denying this telegraphic news stream of, of international and nationally significant news items to newspapers who wanted those items. Now let's talk a little bit about um uh, you, uh, you know, I could picture it in my head the way that uh, people react to technology adversely these days and uh, text messages and, and changing the way people think and, you know, sort of short and abrupt and uh, direct. Um, and there were calls back then that this, the Telegraph was sort of uh, redefining um, American prose. 
and uh, and of course you say in your book it's very difficult to measure that um, but can you talk a little bit about that sort of uh, people uh, making that argument and uh, ha sort of how you came to your conclusion that well maybe but I, I can't really say that it did one way or the other yeah um, this has been something that people have long believed going back to at least Ernest Hemingway who um, attributed his style to being a cable correspondent um, there's, there's compression of the language in sending a telegram. The operators estimated that they only sent about half of the text handed to them by a customer, so they would abbreviate things. Um, and this, this is a feature going all the way back to Morse's first line, where Morse instructs Alfred Vail at the other end of the line in Baltimore to um, eliminate particular words like prepositions and articles and to condense and abbreviate as much as possible. So from the very beginning, you know, time is money with telegraphing. So if you can condense a message um, down to 50% of the content of what's on a message blank, you're saving your company money. So there's uh, the impulse to do that just because the telegraph has limited bandwidth. Um, as far as its effect on pro style generally, that's a lot harder to gauge because, um, you know, the 19th century has a lot of examples of really wordy authors and up until Mark Twain you probably don't get a distinctive kind of terse American style. Um, I think my personal opinion is that the typewriter probably streamlined written language more than any other technology just because it became so much easier to churn out correspondence. Interesting. Um, so let's um, quickly talk about finance capitalism and wh where it probably was easiest for you to gauge the influence uh, because it's just it's you can see it. Um, what did the telegraph do there? I mean, it completely changed uh, uh, finance capitalism as people knew it. Mm -hmm. Before about 1870, um, actually, let me start a little earlier if I can. Sure. Because this is the subject of, of a major research project I'm doing on the history of saving and investing. Um, before the Civil War, New York really wasn't the commercial capital of the country in terms of raising money for... Um, infrastructure. And let me explain that. So let's say it's the 1840s and you want to build a railroad line between Boston and Albany. And that did happen. That's a real example. Um, instead of going to New York and going to, you know, the House of Morgan or a similar investment bank and having them underwrite an issue of stock for public offering that would be traded on the New York Stock Exchange, which is what we see today, you would simply take out announcements in the newspaper and say, in the towns between Boston and Albany, so Worcester, um, Troy, you know, other towns in western Massachusetts, the officers of the company will be at the hotel or the city hall or the tavern on such and such day between such and such hours with our stock subscription books. And all those who want to buy stock come in, sign your name, put down a down payment, and then pay off the rest over time and you'll get your shares of stock. And they would also say things like, especially for telegraph lines and turnpike projects, you know, infrastructure projects, if we don't raise enough money from your town, we're simply going to bypass your town and go to the next town over. So if you want the railroad station or if you want the telegraph office, we need your town to raise X thousand dollars of, of capital. So that's how finance capitalism worked before the Civil War. Um, Civil War sort of cements New York's place as the financial center. And then you get 
more active trading on the stock ex New York Stock Exchange. Um, but at the time, before about 1870, if you wanted to trade stock on the floor of a, a stock exchange, whether it's the New York or the Philadelphia or the Boston exchanges, you had to be on the floor present during trading hours. After about 1870, the ticker becomes more widespread. And the ticker allows market participants to monitor what's going on in the market anywhere. You could be in your broker's office. You could be in a hotel saloon that had a ticker. And you could monitor the market from a distance from the trading floor. If you were in your broker's office, you could look at the quotations being posted up on the blackboard um, and say, oh, I think I want to place a trade. So you didn't have to be present on the floor of the exchange. And this really opens up the opportunity for more and more Americans, kind of hearkening back to the older way of doing things, decentralized, more and more Americans can now participate in the stock market. However, there's a catch. Brokers that only trade in 100 lot, sorry, 100 share lots, and par was usually $100 a share, so we're talking around $10,000 in 1880s money, which was, you know, again, a multiplier of, say, 20. Um, so ordinary people began patronizing what were called bucket shops, which were sort of the financial equivalent of off-track betting parlors. You couldn't actually buy real stock in bucket shops, but you could speculate on the price movements of stocks. So these bucket shops got ticker service and then posted up the quotations just like a regular broker, but you could not take delivery of the stock. You'd only wager on the price movements. Uh, which is very interesting. And as you say in your book, the markets more and more became places where you uh, you traded information as opposed right. to trading actual goods. Um, so let's, let's move uh, quickly to the decline. Um, and it had a lot to do with the the telephone and the Bell Atlantic Company, but not the way that you might think. Um, there's a there's a deal that ends up being a very bad deal that Western Union makes with uh, Bell Atlantic. Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. Um, in 1879, so after the telephone is commercialized in 1877, it becomes obvious that there are three inventors whose patents are absolutely necessary to operate a, a workable telephone. Um, one is Alexander Graham Bell's patent, which turned out to be the most valuable patent in all of U.S. history up until that point. Um, Thomas Edison has patents on things like the microphone that's used for um, the, the speaking part, of the transmitting part of the telephone. Alicia Gray, who narrowly lost filing his paperwork, you know, hours before or hours after Bell did in 1876, also had a cluster of patents that were essential to operating a working, a working telephone system. So the Bell Telephone Company uses Bell's patents. Western Union sets up a rival called the American Speaking Telephone Company using Edison's and Gray's patents. And by 1879, Western Union really wants to acquire Bell. They did this before with the company that operated the stock tickers called the Golden Stock Tele Telegraph Company. They really wanted a situation where they could use, Western Union could use its financial muscle and its market power to force Bell to double its capital turn, and then turn half of its capital over to Western Union, placing Western Union effectively in charge of Bell's operations. Bell doesn't do that. The Bell Telephone Company thinks that Bell's patents are going to control the industry, and it turns out they're right. Um, so the two companies compete for a few years, and then in 1879, Western Union's management, or more significantly, the Vanderbilt family, which controls Western Union, 
is worried that a rival financier, a uh, railroad rival, Jay Gould, is going to make another play for Western Union. So the Vanderbilts basically say, we need to stop, we need to marshal our resources and stop competing with Bell for the telephone market. The telegraph is much more important anyway, so let's get out of the telephone business and concentrate on our competition with Jay Gould. So in 1879, Western Union signs an agreement with Bell, basically partitioning the telephone and telegraph industries. Western Union thinks it's getting a good deal. Western Union thinks it's getting 20% of the telephone market in perpetuity. It turns out Western Union's not, it's a badly drawn contract. Western Union is only getting 20% of a much more limited stake in the industry. Western Union sues to try and get its interpretation of the contract uh, rendered correct by the courts, and Western Union loses. So Western Union signs a very bad agreement. Um, gets out of the telephone industry in 1879, but Western Union's management is really hidebound and doesn't think the telephone will amount to much. So 30 years later, AT&T, Bell's parent company, is a much more profitable and large, it's a, it's a larger company, it's a larger enterprise than Western Union. And AT&T buys out Western Union and operates it until 1914. Um, the federal government under the Wilson administration forces AT&T to disgorge Western Union uh, under threat of antitrust prosecution. So the two industries again separate, but they're still sort of intertwined because Western Union continues to buy circuit um, capacity from the Bell system all the way on up till after World War II. And there's sort of a last uh, gasp for Western Union. They try to, like the telephone, become uh, uh, popular, popularized and uh, sort of, um, you know, uh, fixed text messages, I think they're called, where right. you can send a birthday greeting. And uh, But another um, hurdle they had was they were synonymous with bad news. Um, yes. You know, you got a telegram. It usually meant that somebody died or there was some other bad news. Right. Um, so um, let's let's shift uh, completely if we can, because you you have another project that's that's very interesting. Uh, it's it, the 90, 98 acres. Uh, is that the full uh, title of it? I know there's a website. Ninety eight acres in Albany. Wordpress. Com. Please visit. Um, we got interested. There are three historians working on the project. Myself, um, my wife and fellow historian Anne Fow and our colleague Stacy Sewell, who's at St. Thomas Aquinas College. Um, <clears throat> got interested in, in Albany's Empire State Plaza because we found a remarkable set of photographs at the State Archives that show people in the area before demolition, often in their apartments and, and places of business. So we realized that there's a human story to be told here. Um, we've generalized the story. We, we were fortunate enough to, to get two NEH grants we're now doing urban renewal around the state of New York, and we're planning on publishing a website that will showcase the, the really rich visual record photographs, plans, architectural drawings, even architectural models that cities like Newburgh still have in their, their you know, city planners or engineers' offices. Um, so the visual record is really stunning, and, and um, the website will showcase that. And and uh, just, to, just to be very clear, this was in the early 1960s, mm-hmm. Uh, I believe Governor Nelson Rockefeller had this idea to level what he thought was a, um, a rundown neighborhood. 
in, in Albany, and it eventually became the, well, they obt- the state obtained the land via eminent do- domain, correct? Mm-hmm. And it eventually became the Empire Plaza. Um, so please visit the website. It really is a, a very handsome looking website, and there are a lot of great pictures and, and articles on there. Thank you. Um, Professor Hockfelder, thank you very much for joining me. Uh, please take a look at the the, the website, and uh, I'll tell you, this really was a great book. Um, I know it's available on Amazon because that's where I got it. It's called The Telegraph in America, 1832 to 1920. And once again, thank you very much. Thank you, Nick. My pleasure.